outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your guide to the whitetail woods. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light, go farther, stay longer. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this week on the show, we're joined by Whit Fosberg and Aaron Field from TRCP to discuss the most impactful conservation bill of the year and how we can help get it passed. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by First Light. And this week on the show, as you might expect, we are continuing our Conservation Month series. And our topic today is a very specific one. We're going to discuss one specific piece of legislation, the biggest conservation bill, actually, of the entire year. And if drafted and passed in the way that our guests today believe that it should be, this bill is going to direct billions, that's billions with a B, billions of dollars every year to conservation programs that will get better habitat on the ground for wildlife. It's going to help pay for programs that open up millions of private acres to public hunting access and so, so much more. This bill is the 2023 Farm Bill. It's a title that at first glance, you know, maybe doesn't suggest great things for wildlife and wild places, but by the end of today's episode, I promise you will understand just how important the Farm Bill is to hunting, fishing, and conservation. And you'll understand the specific details in the 2023 edition that we hunters need to understand and advocate for. So our guests today to help tackle all this both come from the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, and they are Whit Fosberg, the president and CEO of the TRCP, and Aaron Field, 
the director of private lands conservation. So today is going to be very action oriented. You know, compare this back to our first episode in the series, which was high level kind of philosophy. You know, what's going on with wildlife all across the world? Why are things like this happening? What does that mean for us? And then last week in our second episode, we had this deep dive into the specific trends and issues impacting just white-tailed deer. And now today we're going to get even more nitty-gritty by talking about this one specific law that could make a very real, very meaningful difference for wildlife, wild places, hunting, fishing, and all that kind of stuff. So we're going to get some very concrete action items today to help make this happen. It's going to be a roadmap for you know, what we need to understand about the 2023 Farm Bill and what we can actually do to make sure the best version possible is passed. Something that's going to help you and your deer hunting and your you know, hunting properties and all the other things that kind of ripple out from that. That's the plan today. But before that, I do want to point out that if you're listening to this on launch day or somewhere around it, you know, April 20th of 2023 or so, you should know that this coming Saturday, April 22nd, is Earth Day. And I don't know what your take is on Earth Day. Um, I don't know. It was something that I was always aware of growing up. I don't know if it was something that I always, quote-unquote, celebrated or participated in, but it was something that I think was always a good excuse to you know, talk about some kind of environmental cause or go out and pick up some trash or something during school. That's kind of what Earth Day meant to me maybe as a kid growing up. But now as an adult, as someone who, um, you know, is, is pretty active and interested in this whole conservation sphere of stuff in the world, I, I guess the more I think about Earth Day, the more I think about this being an event or a holiday or something that we hunters and anglers can claim as our own. This doesn't have to be something that's just, you know, talked about and participated in by folks driving a Prius in San Francisco. This could be something that me driving a Ram 1500 that likes to hunt and fish, I can participate in Earth Day and I should be excited about it just as much as anyone else because I think history would indicate, I think it backs up the claim that hunters and anglers are the original conservationists, some of the original most impactful environmentalists. This is our day just as much as anyone else's. And... With that being said, you know, I personally at least am excited to get out there this Saturday and get involved. We have our second event of our Working for Wildlife Tour coming up Saturday, April 22nd, 2023, up in Michigan. So if you live in my home state of Michigan, I would love to see you up in the northern part of the MIT. We are going to be building small game habitat creating brush piles, maintaining wildlife openings, doing some really cool stuff on some public land up there in Kalkaska. Um, you can get the full details about that and how to register and where to show up, uh, all of that. If you just Google working for wildlife tour, and then you'll find the links there to the registration page, um, all the details need. I think it's from 930 to 2 with partnership or in partnership with MUCC. I already told you what we're doing. I'm going to bring um, t-shirts that I'll be giving away to the first 25 volunteers out there. There's also going to be a social get together at the Bear Lake Inn afterwards. I think that's like from three to six, give or take somewhere in that ballpark. We'll be getting some food, hanging out, talking, 
I'm excited to uh, meet a bunch of you, hear your hunting and fishing stories, see some pictures, and uh, make some great wildlife habitat too. But, uh, you know, that's not all. There are also events similar to this, you know, all over the country. So if you're not in Michigan, don't feel bad. There are things you can do. Get outside and participate in Earth Day. And I did just a little bit of Googling, and I found a handful of different things very quickly. Um, Take, for example, if you are a backcountry hunters and anglers kind of person, there is a wood duck box building event over in Brunswick, Vermont this Saturday. Uh, If you're down in Ohio, there is a tree planting event in the Wayne National Forest in Nelsonville, Ohio. Uh, Here's some stuff being put on by Trout Unlimited. They've got a bunch of different river cleanup events all over the country, every different neck of the woods. There's one I just saw in the Mianus River in Connecticut. There's another one on the Harpeth River in Tennessee. Uh, Pheasants Forever, if you're an upland kind of person, they've got some habitat work days going on. I saw one in Haviland, Kansas. I saw one in Worthington, Minnesota. So do a little bit of online searching with whatever organization you enjoy working with the most, or you can just search like, you know, Earth Day events in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and there's going to be a whole bunch of different things pop up. Um, My, you know, encouragement to you is to get out there, have some fun with it give back a little bit, but most of all, I think it's just going to be a good time. I've I've been preaching this over the last few weeks, so sorry, same old message, but uh, man, it's just true. It is fun to be outside, to do some good work on the land, and to do it with some other people that enjoy wildlife, that enjoy hunting, that enjoy fishing, that enjoy the great outdoors. What more could you ask for, people? That's just the good life. So I hope to see you this Saturday, April 22nd in Michigan. And if not, can't wait to see your pictures on social media and to hear your stories about all the other good stuff that's going on in your own region. So with all that out of the way, let's get into this conversation about the 2023 Farm Bill. I know sometimes these legislation related episodes maybe aren't the most, uh, I don't know, riveting, but it's something that really matters. And it's something that we actually can have an impact on. We as citizens in America have a voice and an opportunity to influence our representatives in Washington, D.C. And in this case, get some very serious funding for programs that make a real tangible difference on the ground. So let's make it happen, people. Let's get this bill in its best possible version for wildlife passed. And today, Witt and Aaron are going to help us understand exactly how we can do that. So without further ado, here we go. All right. With me now on the show, I've got Witt Fosberg and Aaron Field. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. Great to be on, Mark. Thanks for having us, Mark. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I'm going to put a challenge to the both of you, which is that we need to make a Farm Bill podcast riveting and entertaining okay can can you do that aaron we've had wit on here before i know what you can bring the goods but aaron can you can you bring the goods on this one <laughs> you know if if i had to choose two adjectives to describe myself it'd be riveting and entertaining so <laughs> okay yeah we can do it perfect <laughs> so so then i'm i think we're in good shape the the conversation today i think you know while there's a lot of acronyms, there's a lot of jargon maybe sometimes when you get into this kind of legislation, uh, 
it, it seems like this is really, really important. This is a conversation that's worth having uh, for a number of reasons. So I guess the first thing, though, is I want to kind of lay a foundation for folks. If if people don't know why in the world a deer hunting podcast is talking about a farm bill, let's get that covered. So, Whit, do you want to maybe lay us a, a quick ground grounding on what the farm bill is and why? I think I just sure. heard you a couple days mention this as one of the largest pieces of conservation legislation around it all. Yeah, so it actually is the largest single uh, conservation legislation in you know, U.S. federal policy. And if you think about you know, the way the U.S. is set up, you know, if you take out Alaska, 70% of the land in the continental U.S. is privately owned. And about half of that is in agriculture or forestry, grazing, and you know, the traditional agricultural practices. And uh, the majority of hunting in this country happens on private land. We have 640 million acres of public lands, which especially right in the West, you do a lot of your hunting on. But in the East, in the Midwest, even in parts of the West, a lot of that hunting is happening on private lands. And, you know, the Farm Bill was created back in 1985, at least the conservation title, the modern conservation title, when there was a real crisis in, you know, the ag country, in farm country. Uh, you got a lot of small farmers going under, you know, where you had farm aid and all of that. And so really Congress created this basically to pay farmers not to farm. And that was uh, the Conservation Reserve Program. That's when that started. And it turned out there were so many ancillary benefits to, instead of just not farming and keeping people on the land, that, you know, this became really a major part of the farm bill. And it grew from those early parts of the 80s and even going back to after the Dust Bowl, we had some basic farm bill programs. But today, it's a $6 billion program annually. And there are, you know, 150 million plus, you know, acres out there that are rolled in conservation, you know, basically conservation, you know, titled the Farm Bill, one or the another different programs. And really, these are all voluntary programs. So it's very different. You think about the traditional environmental laws, where they're regulatory, you know, like the Clean Water Act and Clean Air Act. A lot of that is based on what you cannot do. And the Farm Bill is a different paradigm. Here, it's we're looking at incentives for private landowners that want to do the right thing. And, you know, it's been incredibly successful. It's very popular in farm country. And if you want white-tailed deer, you hunt pheasants, you hunt ducks, you fish for trout, uh, it makes a big difference in what you do. And it also has other benefits. For example, to the extent that CRP, the Conservation Reserve Program, for example, is along waterways, you're also helping... Um, water quality, water quantity, and, uh, you know, so benefits beyond just fish and wildlife. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that 50% of the United States is, uh, is cropland or pasture or range, different things like that. I saw one of the stats when I was doing some reading up on your website that of that 50% of the land, those, that amount of our country is in the hands of less than 2% of our citizens. So it's kind of a profound influence that these folks that steward those lands have on the, the conservation of, of our, you know, so much of the public impacts of that land and the wildlife it fosters. Um, so, Aaron, would you add anything to what Witt said to kind of give us the groundwork on why this thing matters? Yeah, and I think Witt covered it well. Um, I, I would uh, double back onto that comment about 
These are voluntary incentive-based programs, and landowners really like them. Um, just to give you a couple of statistics, there's the Agricultural Conservation Easement Program. Only about 6% of applications to that program by landowners actually get funded. Um, another one, Environmental Quality Incentives Program, only 30% of qualified applications get funded through that program right now. So there's a whole bunch of landowners, a whole bunch of farmers and ranchers and forest landowners who want to use these programs to do right by the land and can't do it right now because we're not funding it. What's the scale of some of this? I get maybe what maybe you said it. Did you say 130 some million acres or something that's enrolled in one of these programs? Is that did I hear that right? Yeah, I think it's somewhere around 150. I thought, Aaron, you may have a more exact number than I do, but it's a significant chunk of ground. Okay. So it's 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 a real noticeable, impactful amount of you know, landscape that right now has healthy wildlife habitat on it in some form rather than what it might have otherwise, which would have been a monoculture or a dirt field or something that likely would not be nearly as good for hunters, would not be as good for the stream quality and fish in those adjacent areas. Um, is there is there any kind of trend that we've seen in recent years when it comes to how the farm bill is progressing. You mentioned it, you know, started back in the Dust Bowl with some early farm programs. Then it was kind of codified in the 80s with the with the current farm bill, as we call it. Now in the subsequent years, it's, it's an every five-year program. It gets reauthorized, and there seems to be a whole bunch of changes that come, you know, every half decade. What has the history been, Aaron, as far as where this farm bill is, is trending? Are we going in a good direction or have programs been getting cut and we're you know, seeing the impact get you know, dwindling down over time? What have we seen and where does it feel like we're going now? Yeah, so the 2014 farm bill was, was pretty tough for these programs, um, several cuts. Um, 2018 was technically budget neutral, um, but once you factor in inflation, that, that ends up being a cut to programs over time. Um, we are expecting right now that this current bill that folks are working on is going to be at least close to budget neutral, uh, which again comes down to a cut once you factor in inflation. Uh, we did see a big boost to these programs through a reconciliation bill at the end of last year. Um, ended up putting about $20 billion into many of the farm bill conservation programs that we like to see. Um, and so sort of the mid-range trend has been negative, but we've got a big chunk of opportunity that uh, we haven't had in a long time in these programs right now. Okay. So so that's part of this um, this new Title II funding that essentially, correct me if I'm wrong here, but if I understand right, there's a doubling of conservation funding for this year's farm bill. Is that right? Yeah, technically it's not farm bill funding, but it's private land conservation funding. I mean, you know, it's only farm bill funding that passes through a farm bill. So it's just semantics here, but essentially what we've done is, you know, double the conservation title, the farm bill due to the, you know, the programs that Aaron talked about the past, you know, this fall. Um, there was one exception to that, you know, the conservation reserve program, um, because of the, you know, the weird rules by which the reconciliation bill was passed, it was not included in it. So essentially, you're going to see big additions to the other core programs of the conservation title, the Farm Bill, 
but not to CRP, which has really been you know, going through some tough time in recent years. We're finally seeing an uptick in CRP enrollment, but it's uh, not nearly where we'd like it to be right now. Okay. So one more question before we kind of get into some of the nitty gritty, because I do want to dive into, you know, the actual programs, the actual stuff this is getting on the ground. Um, but one thing that's always, I guess, kind of perplexing, I think, for a lot of even for me who follows this stuff pretty closely is what the you know, what actually has to go on behind the scenes to make this stuff happen. Um, I always lean on my uh, elementary school education and the schoolhouse rock, you know, uh, what a bill, whatever that bill song was, that's basically the extent of my background of how, of how bill makes it to Capitol Hill. Can you walk us through what actually is going to be happening between now and the date when this will be authorized for 2023? What, what conversations are having, what committee hearings are happening? What actually is going to happen? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in here, and then Aaron, if I've missed anything, feel free to elaborate. But you, as you mentioned, every five, farm bill passes essentially every five years, give or take. And you know, so you, and then there's the real challenge then implementation. So our community is engaged at two different levels. So as we're gearing up to this farm bill, as in previous farm bills, we assemble the overall community uh, hunting and fishing groups in something we call our agriculture and wildlife working group. And that's 26, 27 different groups that meet regularly. Erin supervises that group and herds the cats. And we come up with a, a recommendation from our community, what we want to see in the conservation title of the Farm Bill. And then, you know, we and the other groups that have lobbying capacity will make sure that, you know, that happens. Hearings are going on already on this. And a lot of the way it works is there are going to be changes made in a program you will see what are known as marker bills. So individual you know, chunks of legislation will get dropped in to be discussed. That may be you know, something like the Conservation Reserve Program and what we can do to make it better, you know, both for the landowner as well as for the environment. And you know, so you know, there is a bill in to do that right now that uh, you know, we'll see some you know, hearings on. There are other marker bills on various other aspects of the farm bill. And then the committee, the Agriculture Committee in the House and the Senate, will do hearings in D.C. and they'll do field hearings around the country, gathering input on you know these marker bills or the overall program in general. And then in theory, a bill passes, and then we have implementation. And there's a major challenge to the implementation too. And so there has to be technical assistance money. Uh, there has to be real engagement from groups like Pheasants Forever, Ducks Unlimited. Rough Grouse Society, the groups that have on the ground and really work in partnership with the agencies and with the landowners to, you know, get conservation going on the ground. And also that that process sends recommendations back up to us in Washington to saying, hey, this is working really well, but this isn't working so well. We would love to see some changes either on the administrative side as this gets implemented or if necessary, as we think about the next farm bill, here are things that legislatively need to be fixed for this program to work better. So it works both directions from DC down and then from the field back up to us. And I guess evolves every five years. Aaron, have I covered that about right? Yeah, that's, that's a great summary. The addition I would make, I guess, is taking a step back to 
actually coming up with this list list of priorities. Whit mentioned we've got a large partner group. Um, that group came together for a period of months, um, and basically uh, organizations would propose an item for our Farm Bill platform, and it would be discussed, it'd be debated, it would be vetted. Um, if, say, a group proposed something that would be great for trout, but it wouldn't be good for you know, prairie grouse, that item wouldn't make the platform. Um, so it's really just, it's a great opportunity to bring all of these different groups together, um, get them talking, get them, uh, everybody on the same page as to what needs to happen in these programs to make them work for fish and wildlife, as well as landowners. Um, and then we can take that next step that Wit was describing where we're getting it up on the hill and getting it paid attention to. So who yeah, are... And Mark, if you go back to really part of the reason that TRCP was created was to make sure that we brought the community together on issues like that. Because in the old days, you know, the commodity groups would go into a room, they would come out with a farm bill position, and they would stick to it the entire way through negotiations. Our community would go into a room, come out with a position, and as soon as the going got tough, would you know break apart like a covey of quail, trying to cut the best deal they could for their critter, and as a result, you know our, we were just we kept losing, and really it was 2008 Farm Bill where you know we finally the community came together and locked arms and stayed locked, and that has really been the ascension of the modern conservation title, the Farm Bill. Okay, so so who are these, or can you give me some examples of who these folks or organizations are that have helped you guys put together this set of priorities that you're taking to the hill? Uh, you mentioned some oh, you know, yeah. organizations in passing, but but who who had a seat at this table? So I'm not going to read through the whole you know, 27 groups, but the big ones are you know Ducks Unlimited, Pheasants Forever, Trout Unlimited, the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. Uh, Turkey Federation, National Deer Association, you know, and you know, a multitude of others. Um, the land trust community is involved with that because things like the conservation easement programs in the Farm Bill are really implemented by the land trust community. So it is, you know, Aaron, am I missing anybody big in there? I mean, it's it's a it's a long list, and which right not to try to read through the whole thing, but I just say that there is expertise in each of these groups in the different programs. Um, if, if we had to rely just on my knowledge, we would have a much shorter list of priorities here and it would be a lot, a lot less useful. Um, so we've got a great group in the Ag and Wildlife Working Group um, who put this together. Yeah, and, and folks, can, yeah, folks can go on our website, trc.org, and you know, just search Farm Bill, and you'll see you know, the basics about how the program works. You'll see our recommendations of the 2023 Farm Bill You'll see the groups that signed our recommendations that went up to Congress. So a lot of that will be, you know, anybody who's, you know, that curious can go and you know, get all the details. Okay. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something. 
because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. So when I, when I think about this upcoming, um, you know, moving into this year and the authorization of this bill, there's a number of different priorities that I know you guys have listed out as part of the process working with this group. Um, but before we get into what those opportunities and priority areas are, I'm curious if there's any overarching threats. Like if there's a bunch of things we want, but is there anything that we're worried about losing or having slashed? Is there anything like that that's looming over this process that we have to make sure we defend against? Wit, does anything come to mind when I bring that side of things up? Well, I think that one of the big you know, challenges we're going to have is you know that new you know money you know that came through the you know the Inflation Reduction Act, the Reconciliation Bill, the Climate Bill. You know, how do we make that part of the permanent baseline of the farm bill moving forward? I mean, it's you know, that twenty billion dollars is great. It's going to make a huge difference in programs for the next few years. But you know, really, that ought to represent the new baseline for that farm bill because, as Aaron mentioned before, 
there is twice as much demand out there from landowners who are raising their hand that want to be in this program than there is money to pay for them. We finally solved that in the short term. Um, but we want to make sure that doesn't slide backwards and we're having a bunch of land that goes into conservation that falls out of it five years from now. And, you know, I think that, you know, that's just not fair to the landowner. And let's be something clear here. Nobody is enrolling their best, you know, corn and soybean, you know, fields into conservation programs. It is the marginal lands that may fail every other year, every third year, that really aren't the best for farming to begin with. Those are the ones that are getting enrolled. So, you know, we're not, I mean, I am not worried about us not being able to feed the world by entering more land into farm conservation. In fact, we're giving basically more benefits to the farmers, you know, more security, more confidence what they can do long term. So I think it actually enhances, you know, farm security. Yeah. How likely is this? Is, is this idea of being able to make this the new baseline? Is this like a pie in the sky, cross our fingers, wish and dream? Or is that a realistic possibility with the right pressure? Well, I think with the right pressure, I think it's a realistic possibility. I mean, it's not a slam dunk by any means. Um, but in part of our job is to convince Congress that this makes sense on multiple levels. It makes sense from the landowner. It makes sense for the environment. It makes sense for the hunters and anglers out there. If you care about climate change, this is the way to sequester a whole bunch of carbon. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, and it's all voluntary. So yeah. I think that we can make that case. And I think that, you know, the, the folks who don't like government overreach, you know, this is not a program to target. You know, there are a lot of other more mandatory programs, you know, that in the farm, maybe not in the farm bill, but in certainly Western the way government works that ought to have their ire and not these voluntary programs that pretty much are win-wins for everybody. Yeah. What's your what's your read on the impact of the hunter and angler community voice on these kinds of things? I mean, we were chatting the other day about how, you know, on typical environmental things, um, there's going to be there's almost a superpower maybe that hunter hunters and anglers have because we can speak to a side of the aisle maybe that isn't typically as interested in this kind of conversation. Can, can you expand on that at all? Is there any truth to that? You know, what? Oh, yeah, absolutely, Mark. I mean, I think that, you know, first of all, I mean, we end up being very aligned with the private land our community. They pretty much all hunt and fish. And, you know, the folks that hunt and fish are, you know, very aligned with them. So there's a good synergy there. But also, I mean, we're not your traditional environmental voice. I mean, we're not we're litigating, we're not, you know, shrill, you know, sort of lefto environmentalists or whatever the stereotype might be. I mean, we're folks that, you know, are out there that use the land that, you know, care about making sure the open spaces stay open spaces, but that the farmers stay on the land. And so I think when you've seen this in different ways, I mean, when our community stood up for public lands, it completely changed the dialogue. At the in that time back in the mid 2000s or 2013, 14, 15, 16, you know there was a lot of momentum to basically get rid of public lands, transfer them to the states, sell them off for profit, and it was really our community standing up for that and flexing its muscle on something other than the Second Amendment that really turned the tide. And I think that we can do that on Farm Bill too. But part of our job, and I'm glad you're doing this podcast, is to educate the average hunter or fisherman out there that these programs are really important, uh, not just for, you know, fish and water, not just for environmental quality, and, but also for things like access. I mean, Aaron will talk about this voluntary public access habitat improvement program. 
But that is right now basically pays for about 3 million acres of private lands to be open for public hunting and fishing. So it's an access you know, program as well. Um, but a lot of our community just doesn't understand it and doesn't know the benefits that it brings and think this is something that is not relevant to them. Yeah, yeah, so true. So let's let's talk about some of that stuff, some of the programs that make this so relevant for folks like the three of us and anybody else who likes to hunt and fish. Uh, Aaron, if you will do me this favor, I'm going to throw at you a couple of the high kind of profile programs and I'll give kind of my layman's understanding of the program. And then I'll ask you to correct me, to fill in the blanks, to flesh it out and give us the expert point of view. And then from there, I'm curious to hear, you know, what are we looking for with this program in the new farm bill? So that's kind of my, my plan to walk through these next couple big programs. And let's start with CRP because that's, I think, a headliner whenever we talk about the farm bill. And it's something that a lot of hunters do have some kind of experience with. Um, I have to admit that I knew of CRP before I even understood what the acronym stood for. I just thought that's what people call brushy, grassy fields. (laughs) I didn't really realize that was a program behind it. Um, And I guess that means it's successful if we've now started to define a type of landscape by the program that has made it possible. Um, But here's my layman's understanding of CRP. This is a program that pays a per acre on a per acre basis to a farmer to take land out of farm production. So he'll take an acre out of corn or soybeans or something and instead plant some kind of other native, I think always native uh, grasses, forbs mix, different things like this, getting some kind of different habitat type on the landscape that's better for wildlife, that's better for the soil quality, it's better for carbon sequestration, water filtration, all these different things. And there's a number of different programs to help fund that, to monitor that, to make sure that land's being taken care of in a way that's good for all while also paying that farmer, you know, fair market price for that land. And so that is what leads to, like you mentioned, with 150 some million acres or however many are actually in CRP. I guess it's not that many. It's something like 27 million or something, but a bunch of land in this great habitat for deer, great habitat for birds, pheasants, all that kind of stuff. It's it's the favorite kind of place I like to hunt near where I can see into these grassy fields, great cover for deer to bed in. There's still some food in there too. During the rut, there's always bucks cruising around the downwind edges of those types of spots. I mean, it's it's primo habitat. Um, so that's what I know at a very high level about CRP. What should a hunter know outside of that or, or said more eloquently than I could, Aaron? Well, you actually, you nailed it, actually. I, I love that description. And I think pointing out the deer habitat benefits to CRP is something we haven't always done a great job of. Um, pheasant hunters know it well. Uh, duck hunters know it real well, uh, especially if you put that CRP up in the prairie pothole region where we're growing a bunch of ducks. Um, but the other thing you mentioned where, you know, where I live, I live in western Minnesota. If there's grass and there's not cows on it, um, people just refer to it as CRP. It doesn't matter what it actually is enrolled in or whether it's enrolled in a program at all. So got some name recognition there, which is great. Um, but basically you hit um, most of the program. Uh, I'll say one thing you, you said, pay a fair rental rate. For the most part, we're not paying a fair rental rate right now. We're relying on landowners out of their goodness of their heart to um, you know, sign up for this program. Uh, in most places, the 
amount we're able to pay is just really not competitive with crop production right now. And that's one of the main reasons we're, we've got about 23 million acres enrolled in the CRP right now. Uh, we should have about 27 million acres. Um, and a lot of that has to do with rental rates. Um, but yeah, you're taking uh, typically real marginal land that is high risk for crop production and often what, what a lot of people don't realize is a certain percentage of just about every egg, every crop field in the country is costing the farmer money to farm. Um, it might be too wet. It might be too steep. The soil might be too heavily eroded. Um, you might have, you know, saline or sodic issues. Anyway, there's a lot of reasons it can happen, but something like 5 to 15%, depending on where you are in the country, uh, you're actually losing money on because we're we're paying for seed, we're paying for fertilizer, and we're not getting that crop production out of it. Um, anyway, we're taking acres like that typically, um, putting them into conservation cover, uh, something that makes good nesting habitat, makes good bedding habitat, stops soil erosion, um, and basically just putting it in a higher use. Um, and we signed folks up for a 10, 15, in some cases, 30 year contract, um, to keep that cover in place. Uh, and, and, and then we, uh, we asked them to take care of it. Yeah. And this is something that I know a lot of even, um, land managers, you know, who own tracts of land primarily for wildlife, even at least look to try to get involved. And I know there's some folks I know who've been able to get their own land, into a CRP program or something similar. And, you know, within that there's flexibility to plant these different mixes, but then also there might be room for some food plots even within that. So I know this is kind of in the side, but the CRP program and, and similar programs are an interesting option for recreational landowners to try to get into as a way to somewhat help subsidize habitat improvement projects that benefit you know, downstream and across the kind of the ripple effects of a specific property. Um, but I guess that's neither here nor there. My, my biggest question for you, Aaron, given that CRP is, is it has been capped, how many acres are allowed to get into it? And then, as you mentioned, we're not necessarily paying a rate that makes it competitive with what the market is paying folks for, um, for their crop. What is it that we're asking for in this round of the farm bill? when it comes to CRP, what are the big changes or requests that we have? Yeah. I, I mean, the, the biggest issue here is we're not providing strong enough incentives to, to get to that acreage cap in previous years. You know, we work on getting that acreage cap higher right now. We just need to make the program attractive enough to get to that current cap. Um, so a few things that we would like to see, um, first of all, improving those rental rates would be a huge step. Um, towards making this program all that it could be. But a couple of just simple things. Um, there's a payment limitation. Uh, landowners um, can't exceed, and that limit was set, oh, 1985. Um, so we'd like to see that raised to account for inflation. Um, we'd like to restore cost share for the management activities we ask people to do on their CRP. So if we say all right, you're signed up for a 10-year contract. At year five, we want you to go in and mow brush and spray weeds. Um, we think that the landowner should receive some cost share so they're not shouldering that entire um, cost. Uh, 
And uh, we also think that there's some room to put uh, grazing infrastructure in place where it makes sense. So where I live in Minnesota, um, for example, a lot of these grasslands evolved with some grazing. And if we can put the infrastructure, put the fencing, put the water facilities in place so that we can use livestock as a management tool on that CRP acre, um, that saves us some taxpayer money for other ways of managing, and it also provides an incentive to the landowner um, to to have that enrollment. Um, and uh, so we've been working, and we were happy to see a, uh, a marker bill that Whit mentioned earlier um, be introduced, the CRP Improvement Act, that would do several of these things. Um, so, so we're hopeful that that uh, can move forward this Congress. Okay. So if we can get all those things done, if we can get those rates back to a, a more reasonable level, do you feel confident that we will not be in a position like we were a handful of years ago where folks were dropping out of CRP and we were seeing you know, more and more land converted back into ag? We were seeing wildlife habitat come off the ground. How do you feel about our, the general future prospects of this program and, and all those acres that we, that we desperately need? Yeah, and I, I think we definitely can get back to the point where this is viewed positively. I think that uh, CRP has had a bit of a public relations problem in the past, and hunters and anglers are some of the only folks who have you know stood up for this program, which in terms of environmental benefits is pretty much the best thing we can do um, within Farm Bill conservation programs, maybe next to our easements. Um, but just a ton of, ton of positives and, and we just need to keep telling that story and especially hunters um, and especially taking that next step from moving out from uh, our duck hunters and pheasant hunters and having our deer hunters talk about this, having you know predator hunters talk about this. Um, it's an important program. Yeah. So how about we move to the next one, the Voluntary Public Access and Habitat Incentive Program. My super high-level simpletons description of this term is this is a program that provides funding for states to create public access programs where we pay a landowner to open up their land to some level of hunting and fishing access. This is how we have like walk-in programs in states like North Dakota or Kansas or Montana, uh, I think Minnesota maybe has something like that. I know Michigan has something like that. There's a lot of states that have these programs and I think this is the primary funding mechanism for those. It's one of the biggest challenges for hunters these days is finding places to hunt while there's not necessarily more hunters than there used to be. There sure seems like there's more active hunters out on these public lands these days. So having increased access to private lands seems like a heck of a good deal and something we would all really benefit from. Um, is that a right, a correct way to describe this program? And what else would you add? Um, to that, Aaron. Yeah, so this is uh, basically you take the programs that states and now tribes have already created, um, private lands uh, access programs, um, you know, from Kansas to, you mentioned Minnesota's program with walk-in areas from North Dakota to the private land open to sportsmen. Um, so you're taking these programs that have already been designed at the state level, and oftentimes they're implemented at even smaller levels of government. So for example, in Minnesota, it's our soil and water conservation districts that actually enroll land in the walk-in access program. Um, but you're supplementing 
the funds that states have available to do those programs. So, for example, in Minnesota, I pay my uh, $3 walk-in access validation fee every time I buy my hunting license. Um, and there's other sources of state and local funding that are used to support that walk-in access program, whatever it's called in your state. Um, but this is a federal program that states apply for these funds and they, they tell USDA how we're going to use them and um, USDA awards those out as a grant. And uh, what's really cool about this is not only are they you know locally designed, locally led in your state, um, but they've got a massive return on investment. And I don't know if anybody expected that uh, when these programs came out. Wick could probably tell me some more of the history here, but um, we've got a recent report that says basically if we spend $1 through the VPA HIP program in a rural community to open up access, we're seeing a return of about over eight, almost $9 to that investment. Um, and that's because hunters and fishermen and fisher women are coming to town. They're eating at restaurants, they're buying gas, they are staying at hotels, they're seeing the sites while they're in town, they're shopping in local stores. And so it's, it's been a massive boon um, to rural communities. And um, this is really, in terms of farm bill dollars, I didn't mention this at the front, but um, conservation programs themselves are a really small chunk of the farm bill. Um, nutrition programs take up the bulk, um, crop-related programs take up the next, and conservation is just kind of a small sliver of that. The VPA HIP, this program is a sliver of a sliver of a sliver. This is only a $50 million program right now. Um, spread that out among 50 states, put it over five years. Um, we could make a lot bigger impact for hunting access and for rural economies uh, if we were to support this program better. Yeah. So what's and the Aaron, ask? Aaron touched on this, and uh, but I'm going to go back a little bit history. It was really the state of Kansas that pioneered this. And at that time, Steve Williams, who then went on to become you know, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service director and now runs the Wildlife Management Institute, he was the head of the Fish and Game Department out there. And they created this program, became so popular that they had counties in the state giving them grants so they could go out and basically expand it. And that was really the model for the national program, which came in in 2008. Um, and it was also worth noting that this is something that a farmer can layer on other programs. So you may have CRP, and then you get additional money for this. Um, and part of this is too is not just you know paying the farmer to open up their land to hunt and fish. It also waives you know the state assumes liability if somebody you know, falls in a ditch and breaks their leg and tries to sue. So it removes that whole aspect, which is the prohibition from you know, a lot of landers wanting the public on their land. They're afraid of that. So it, it works on multiple levels. We have a there's a marker bill out there right now that would expand this program to 150 million dollars, and you know it, which would obviously triple it. But you know it just can't be understated, overstated just how important this is for the hunting and fishing public, as well as for the landowner who wants to you know get as much benefit as he can out of doing the right thing. Yeah. So is that the ask for that 150 million in funding for the program, or is there something else? That's uh, the that's primary the ask. ask. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this program works really well. Uh, USDA might need a little bit more flexibility as to how they roll it out to states, but for the most part, we can just fund this program better and it'll do a lot of good. 
And it's, the other cool thing about this one is that this is, you know, block grants to states and the states can do their own programs. And when this program got created, you had states like Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Connecticut that have very little public land and didn't have any programs like this, you know, create the programs. All of a sudden there was a source of federal funding that, that they could match that would create this program. So basically build it and they will come. Yeah. This just seems like a no brainer. It's, and it's for the, for the hunting and fishing community in particular. I mean, it's just one of those big flashing red lights of a problem for so many people trying to find places to go these days. This is I don't know if there's any more impactful opportunity to change that than this. Um, I mean, real meaningful dollars to open up access. So uh, if if you hate trying to understand all the acronyms within the Farm Bill, if CRP and EQIP and all these different things are too much, just remember Habitat Access equals the Farm Bill. And uh, that alone is, is a very selfish reason to get behind this kind of stuff. Um, but there's plenty more selfish reasons. The next one, uh, Aaron, is equip. I want to talk about equip a little bit. My Cliff Notes version of what this program does, and, and the acronym is the Environmental Quality Incentive Program, I believe. But the Cliff Notes for what that does is it basically is a program that provides financial assistance and incentives to landowners to do things on their land in an environmentally friendly way. For example, you know, using different agricultural practices when planting their crops, such as using cover crops or maybe no-till drilling or doing different things along those lines that basically preserve soil quality, preserve water, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all of that is good for fish. It's good for wildlife. It's good for wildlife habitat, all sorts of different things like that that are associated or adjacent to these agricultural lands. Um, is that right, Aaron? What did I miss on that one to, to kind of keep it high level? Well, I'm, I'm thinking we need to get you in some congressional offices because you're doing a great job. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, Equip, um, this is one that we do not have to sell to the ag community and to uh, legislators who are tuned into the ag community. Uh, farmers and ranchers love this program. Uh, it's it's the simplest program. Um, you know, we can walk in, we come up with a conservation plan for your farm and ranch, and uh we can start putting practices on the ground and help you pay for them. Um, you mentioned cover crops is one of them. Reduced tillage is another practice that can be used. Uh, we can cost share putting fence to keep cows out of the creek. Uh, there's just we can we can cost share putting in conservation cover. We can up, upland bird habitat, um, and so it's basically a list of list of things that have great societal benefits. A list of things that help with long-term, I'm talking generational ag production, um, and some things that they might just take, you know, it might take a little cost share. It might take a few years of implementation to get them to uh, that profitability standard for the individual farmer or rancher. Um, so currently within EQIP, there's a requirement that 10% of funding uh, go to wildlife conservation practices. And those practices vary a lot from state to state. You know, um, in you know, let's let's say in the Western Dakotas, uh, you might need a shelter belt somewhere um, to provide some winter cover. Uh, in uh, longleaf pine forest, it might be getting uh, prescribed fire back on the ground. So doing some maybe some brush control first, and then getting prescribed fire back into that forest to benefit quail. Um, but uh, so. 
So states and state technical committees, which are just groups of people within the state who care about agricultural conservation and have expertise in it, um, are to use 10% of EQIP funds for wildlife. And uh, we want to make sure that that requirement stays in place. There's other requirements that funding go to livestock operations and things like that. We want to keep that wildlife requirement. And we want to make sure that... uh, that NRCS and, and the state technical committees are putting a lot of thought into using that 10% wisely and, and putting it towards things that really are great for wildlife um, rather than, you know, seeing it as sort of an afterthought. Oh, this maybe this counts and we'll just count that under the bucket. I think most states are doing a good job of this. Um, we want to make sure that it continues to be that way. Okay. Yeah, and Mark, also, it's worth noting that, you know, you, you've heard a lot about the drought and the prolonged drought in the West and what that's doing to the Colorado River and you know, a lot of streams. And this is a program we use for that, too. For example, when I was at Trout Unlimited, we were using equip grants to go in there and work with individual landowners to improve the irrigation efficiency or to go from flood irrigation to, you know, you know center pivot or something like that with save water. And then you put that saved water into a stream for fish. So it has a bunch of different applications that, you know, if you're creative out there on the conservation front, could very well work with Equip. Mm. Yeah, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. 
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Last headliner, for me at least, would be the conservation easement programs that are part of this. And, and again, super high level. Conservation easements are basically a situation where the development rights for a property are essentially transferred to the government, bought for some fair fair rate, essentially allowing that place to remain undeveloped into perpetuity. You know, this is obviously by the choice of the landowner. They're voluntarily, you know, selling that future right, and they get a financial benefit for it in the short term, and it ensures that these places stay undeveloped. And, you know, highly conserved habitat into the future. And I, I don't know all about the details in the farm bill, how that specifically is played out. But there are programs like that within the farm bill. Aaron, can you uh, can you fill in the gaps there? Yeah, so these mostly fall under the agricultural conservation easement program. Uh, that's split into the ag land easement, ALE and then the wetland reserve easements. Um, so a lot of hunters and anglers are pay most attention to the WRE, the wetland reserve easements. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, landowners voluntarily um, give up some of, the, some of the right to develop on their land um, in exchange for a market price. Uh, they retain the right to access. They retain uh, the right to restrict access. They, they can use it for a lot of different things. It's just uh, we're not going to turn it into a housing development. We're not going to drain that wetland. Um, so uh, as you can imagine, um, some people will hear that and they'll say, oh, well, why would I want to give that up? Um, well, you know, for a lot of people, that connection to the land is so important that they don't want to see that you know, get turned into that strip mall or get turned into that uh, housing development or whatever it is. Um, and so they're looking for a way to protect their, protect that land into the future. Um, and I think I mentioned this earlier, but for wetland reserve easements, 94% of the people who walked in the door and offered up their land for an easement are, are turned down because we don't have the resources to do it. Um, right now, there's a pretty big hole um, that I think a lot of deer hunters would be interested in. We don't have a really great way to do forest easements. Um, and these would uh, basically maintain forested land as forest. Uh, and you'd still have, you know, management taking place. You'd still have conservation appropriate forestry practices. Um, you'd still be taking timber off of that land. Um, but it would be maintained in forest. And so we'd really like to see a program created 
Um, we tested it out through the Healthy Forest Reserve Program. Um, we want to see that expanded and, and, you know, provide an opportunity for forest landowners to participate in an easement program that keeps their working forest in a working forest. Yeah. Is there anything else you would add as far as highlights that we haven't touched on within the 23 Farm Bill? Well, I would just say that, you know, if you talk about the easement programs, which are incredibly important, um, you know, there's some, you know, folks that, you know, are, you know, like North Dakota is a very tough state for easements. And, you know, some others are, there's a lot of sort of political blowback about locking up land forever. But, I mean, this is not exactly a radical concept. I mean, we have about 60 million acres in this country that are under conservation easement. And, again, they're totally voluntary. And it's like, you know, I want to decide that I want to make sure that the land I've grown up in never gets turned into condos or an Amazon fulfillment station or whatever it might be. You know, it seems to me, and if somebody's willing to pay me for it, um, that's my right as a landowner to decide how my land's going to be used. And, you know, so I just think that, you know, we just need to remember the big picture here that, you know, this is, you know, this is supporting private property rights. This is not going against private property rights by any means. But I think bigger picture, um, it's worth noting, too, that the Farm Bill is something that's always been bipartisan. And we talked about these, you know, marker bills are out there on the, you know, public access provisions or on the CRP provisions. You know, the CRP Improvement Act, for example, that's, you know, John Thune, a Republican from South Dakota, and Amy Klobuchar. You know, who is you know a Democrat from Minnesota? You know, so this is one of those few areas in Congress that still work, and it still works. You know, in rural America, but the reason, part of the reason we can always pass a farm bill too, is that there's an urban constituency for it as well. Because as Aaron mentioned, you know, the food security programs, the SNAP programs, the farm, the, you know, the food stamps, you know, that's all part of the farm bill too. So you have this good for farmers, it's good for producers. You know, it's good for feeding the world, and it's good for rural, I mean, for urban America, where there's still a lot of people that need this to get by. So, you know, that weird dynamic means that we typically can pass a farm bill every five years. And uh, so when you see folks saying, well, we shouldn't be spending as much on, you know, the nutrition title or food stamps or whatever, you know, remember, this is a very delicate balance between what rural America needs and what urban America needs, and it works. So. Yeah, those are just my sort of big picture observations. Yeah, that's a that's a a good thing to remember there about that that balance and um, you know uh, I guess leveraging the opportunity we have here with something that is bipartisan with a lot of different people at the table, um, we can recognize some pretty significant benefits for fish and wildlife when otherwise it'd be a lot harder to get this kind of thing pushed through probably. Um, so, Aaron, is there anything else? super noteworthy when it comes to this round of the farm bill that we haven't touched on that folks really need to know about before we get into action items and what we can do to push this thing through. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm ready to jump to action items, but one, one that I'll bring up. Um, so to, to get somebody in, enrolled in these programs to actually get the conservation work on the ground, you've got to have people there to do it. And we ask a ton of the staff in our USDA service centers where you would go to enroll in any of these programs, um, minus VPA HIP, you do that through your state or local government agency. But we absolutely need to make sure that when a farmer, rancher, landowner walks in the door, 
and sits down next to somebody's desk. First of all, we need to make sure that there's somebody who's hired to sit at that desk so that they can actually answer questions. Um, but we need to make sure there's somebody who they can trust, who can answer their questions, who can go out to their farmer ranch and walk them through all the different options and, and areas where we can make some improvements and then shepherd them through this. You know, there's, there's a lot of applications. There's a lot of detail. There's a lot of things that, um, the average person isn't going to be able to walk through. We've got to make sure we're well-staffed. Um, and sometimes we forget about it. We talk about the programs themselves and how we can make them better. Um, we've got to have the people in place to do it too. And whether they're a USDA employee, um, that's very important, or a NGO, non-governmental organization partner um, who is helping to you know, talk landowners through this process and get them enrolled, Either way, we need to make sure that there's, you know, qualified people there who are can take the call and, and work work someone through this process. Yeah, can't argue with that. We we've got these diverse set of asks, I guess. Right, we're we're asking for a whole bunch of different things related to CRP, related to access, related to environmental quality, related to easements, related to staffing. Um, there's a lot of different things here and on the, the priority document, I know you guys have developed, there's a whole list of other things as well. There's a lot of things that we're hoping that the hunting and fishing community can, can see come to fruition in this edition of the farm bill, Aaron. Um, but I'm doubtful that I or anyone listening could remember to list all 24 different priorities in a phone call to someone in Congress or in an email. Or something like that. So I guess what I'm curious about is for the average person listening to this, what should we actually do? What should we actually be asking for? And when's the most important time to do it? Sure. I'll give you a couple options and then pass it over to Wit. Um, first off, uh, visit our website at trcp.org. Um, Click on our Farm Bill page, and uh, we'll take you to an explanation of a lot of programs in layman's terms, uh, and we'll guide you towards an action alert that'll put you in touch uh, with your legislators um, and reach out to them directly. Uh, the other thing I'll say is if you get a legislator you know, in person or you get a, a lawmaker uh, on the phone or you get one of their staff on the phone, you don't have to know all the details of these programs. Um, what you need to do is tell them that you love to hunt and fish. Uh, you want to have great places to be able to do that. And farm bill conservation programs are one of the ways we can get there um, and that you need them to get it done. So having that personal connection is a lot more important than having all the details straightened out. What about timing? When, when do we need to start getting on the horn about this stuff? We need to get on the horn right now. Um, so farm bills are being uh, written as we speak, uh, both in Senate and House Ag Committees, uh, staffers are taking input right now. They're putting it into legislative text, um, and they'll be rolling stuff out in the next few months. Um, so early and often is the answer to the when question. Okay. What, what would you add on all that? Yeah, I, would, uh, I think Aaron covered really well. Um, if you go to trcp.org and you sign up, not only will it send something to your legislator, but then you'll also receive regular updates from us about what's going on. And then if there is a you know something really critical that we need to weigh in on about 
you know, an individual program or individual member of Congress, we can reach back out to you. Um, again, I think it is important what Aaron said, too, is you don't need to be an expert and don't be intimidated by the process. Uh, just talk about the need for hunting, fishing, good habitat on private lands and the importance of the farm bill and making that happen. And the more they hear that, then, you know, that's just bucks them up. And, you know, that's going to be way more impactful than a form letter coming out of our website. When you sign up, the form letter will go. And that's great. But, you know, to the extent that you can attend a field hearing in your neighborhood, if you can, you know, write your legislators, you can call in, you can call in in the evening and just leave a message on the office voicemail. Um, it'll get listened to and it will get responded to. Um, so that individual, you know, sort of contact that you would do uh, beyond just something as simple as, you know, checking a box on an online form, you know, that's really important as well. And I think that, you know, tell your neighbors, you know, talk about it at your local Rotary Club or a Grange, you know, meeting. You know, talk about it at your local chapter meeting at Pheasants Forever or Ducks Unlimited or TU or whatever the group is. And, you know, just get organized and just make your voice your voice gets heard because the squeakiest wheel in Washington often gets the grease. And this is a squeaky wheel that deserves grease. It, it seems like it can't be said enough. This is the largest private land conservation bill and set of funding available every single year, right? I mean, this is this is it. Absolutely, this is, this is the big It's the largest conservation, yeah, bill. Period. Wow. So it is bigger than the funding for all the uh, you know the land management agencies. You know, so I think that you know it's it is a huge deal, and you know again it's supporting you know the farmers and ranchers of America that feed us all, and it's also great for hunting and fishing, great for water quality, great for climate. You name it. Awesome. All right, gentlemen. Well, uh, I will be getting on the horn here myself. I hope that a lot of our listeners will too. And I will be sending folks to trcp.org. And I actually just checked. If you go to trcp.org slash farm bill, it takes you directly to your farm bill landing page, which has lots of great resources there for folks too. So uh, great work with all the resources you guys provide. And uh, thank you so much for walking us through all this here today. Hey, Mark, thanks for uh, the invitation, and thanks for just keeping this issue front and center and your listeners. Yeah, Thank- really appreciate it, Mark. This is fantastic that you're able to spotlight this for us. My pleasure, guys. Have a great rest of your day. You too. All right, and that is a wrap. Thanks to Wit and Aaron again for all of that that they shared. Um, I'm ready to start making some phone calls, sending some emails, doing all that good stuff. Uh, we've got a great opportunity ahead of us this year. The 2023 Farm Bill can be the best ever. And uh, if all of us listening right now, if if all of us, we got tens of thousands of people listening to this. If we all take some action and talk to our senators, talk to our representatives, this thing can get across the finish line and and do some incredible things for deer, for deer hunting, for all sorts of animals, for our hunting access opportunities, and so much more. So I hope you will join me in participating in this opportunity to uh, be you know, active participants in American uh, government, I guess you might be able to say. So with that said, thanks for tuning in. I appreciate you. I'm really proud of this community we have and having you a part of it means a lot to me. So until next time, stay wired to hunt. Thank you.
outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.